Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Journalism is printing what somebody else does not want printed. Everything else is just public relations. And increasingly, everything is just public relations. Look, we're down below 12,000 journalists left in Canada. Meanwhile, the PR, communications, and advertising industries now employ over 160,000 people in this country. So yeah, we are outnumbered, like 13 to 1 doesn't always have to be a fight. I mean, like the day-to-day interactions between us and them, it's usually pretty banal, even friendly, you know? We routinely will ask a person or organization for comment, and their PR flack is the person who gets back to us. And then, you know, we take that comment to the other subject in the story. Their flack responds. We can tell them what time our deadline is. They usually try to accommodate us. Everybody tries to get home in time for dinner. Just another day at the office. If you're lucky enough to have a story that somebody really, really does not want to see published, and when that somebody has deep pockets and everything to lose, things can get intense. I don't know if you're familiar with the term war room, but a war room is when you and a couple of colleagues in the newsroom are up against an ad hoc team of high-priced lawyers, crisis communications experts, investigators, researchers, an entire team often working around the clock on behalf of somebody who wants to stop your journalism. 
That's when the 13 to 1 ratio feels very, very real. Your job is to get the truth out, and their job, all of them, is to hide the truth, warp it, overwhelm it, distract from it, whatever it takes, often by making you a target. Newsrooms keep getting smaller, but nothing else is changing. Governments still routinely lie, and companies are still making false claims, and police departments still routinely mislead the public. The only thing standing between the way they want you to see everything and the way things actually are is us, and we're hardly even here anymore. Cecil Rosner is an award-winning journalist who worked for the CBC for 31 years. He was the executive producer of The Fifth Estate, and he was the managing editor of CBC Manitoba. He's written a book called Manipulating the Message, How Powerful Forces Shape the News. And he's got some ideas about how we can push back. Cecil Rosner joins me and our editor-in-chief, Karen Pugliese, in a moment. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Zachary Taylor, Tandra Gritz, Nathan Skyers, Eric Ng, Kelsey Edgerton, Katie Nielsen, Gabriel Klassen, and Catherine. I'm Catherine, and I'm a social work student living in Aurelia, Ontario. I support Canada Land because Jesse and the team make consuming news and important Canadian issues accessible and thought-provoking. The space Canada Land has created for shows like Canada Landback and Detour is so important in our ever-shrinking Canadian news landscape. I love the opportunity to attend live tapings at Hot Docs, and the swearing is fun, too. Keep it up. Let's talk a little bit about uh, public relations. You've been doing it for 70 years. Who were some of your early accounts? In the very beginning, Procter & Gamble. They had a white floating soap called ivory soap. Right. It, that's, that was the selling point. It would actually float in the bathtub. And they came to me one day and said that mothers washed the faces of the children and they hated soap because their eyes were stinging from the soap. And that when people grew up, they wouldn't use any soap right. because they get conditioned in childhood, according to Freud, my uncle. That's, so you're, you get ahead of yourself, but it's true, your uncle was Sigmund Freud. And so we made a research made a study and we found a sculptor who used soap instead of wax and it then occurred to me that if we could develop soap sculpture competitions i went to a psychologist and he said every child has a creative instinct that would get them accustomed to using the soap that would get them did it, did to it love work? soap did it work only accustomed to it the fascinating thing to me was that after the first year 22 million children were loving soap and the <laughs> sale of soap just went up. Well, if you say so. Uh... Who is it that Letterman is speaking to in this, in this clip in question? He's talking to Edward Bernays, who is widely recognized as one of the founders of the discipline of public relations. I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Karen Puglesi, as well. Karen, have you heard of this guy before? You know what? I didn't know the name until I actually read Cecil's book. I don't know that I've ever seen Letterman interview a man this old. I think he's in his 90s, he says at one point. Thank you very much for being here. I mentioned uh, to the people how old you were. I hope you don't mind me telling him that. Everybody has five ages and they don't match. 
I happen to be 93 chronologically. Right. But I'm 61 physiologically. Mentally, I don't know, I suppose I'm 45. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and societally, how I adjust to other people, uh -huh. I wouldn't quiver if I saw poor Mr. Reagan. I'd say, hi, Reagan. And emotionally, I won't tell that to anybody. So now you, you won't tell your emotional age to anybody? No. Will you tell yours? Well, uh, uh, based on your statistics, I've passed on weeks ago. That's right. 93 years old. He's a very charming person. By the time of that interview, he had an incredibly long career that encompassed being a counsel to various presidents of the United States, all kinds of major corporations in the U.S. And if you study public relations today, if you take it in a university or community college, he's held out to be one of the foremost theoreticians of public relations. It's a pretty friendly interview, and Letterman is... Uh asking him these genial questions about the original uh, marketing of ivory soap. Like, it's literally about a product that's uh, so pure it floats. <laughs> so he seems like a really nice old guy. What would you ask this guy if you were in Letterman's seat? Bernays was not shy about using the word propaganda. In fact, one of his main textbooks on public relations is called Propaganda. It was published in 1928. Uh, Bernays was really... Uh, introduced to the whole idea of propaganda in a big way during World War I, where the American government tried to sell the war and its participation in the war to its population. And he took part in that. And then he realized after the war was over that, hey, we can use some of these techniques in peacetime to the benefit of companies and presidents and clients. And from that, he developed his whole uh, thesis of uh, how to manipulate public opinion. And so I would have asked him about that. I would have asked him about uh, just the whole very cynical idea that, you know, the hidden persuaders, the people that are really in charge, that are really in control, are the people who can manipulate people's ideas. That's fascinating. So the birth of PR came from selling people war. Like if we could sell them on a war, then maybe we could sell them on soap or on the health benefits of cigarettes. That's exactly what Bernays says. We're talking about the United States, but here for journalists in Canada, to what extent are we actually reporting news or to what extent are we actually stenographers for, you know, governments and think tanks? Over the years, the number of journalists has been shrinking. And at the same time, the number of publicists and communications people has been vastly increasing. Like in 1991... There are about 13,000 reporters in Canada, in this big country of ours. That's it. And at the time, there were a little over 20,000 people who checked off the box. I work in public relations and communications. That was in 1991. And 30 years later, in 2021, the number of reporters had declined to about 11,000. But the number of PR and communications people had increased to 160,000. If you follow the news, you know that Journalism schools are pausing and shutting down. The enrollment is declining. It's kind of scary. There's a bit of an existential threat to journalism, I think. And at the same time, more and more and more communication publicist jobs are being created. So when you talk about stenography, we have fewer and fewer people 
trying to interpret more and more messages from companies and governments and police departments and military and think tanks and all of these organizations that are seeking to push their message out via the media. So yes, I totally agree. We're in danger of having a lot of stenography and, and not enough investigation, analysis, fact-checking, verification. I was in charge of a big newsroom for the CBC for many years, CBC Manitoba. Our people had to feed multiple platforms every day, TV, radio, online. Every time you're reversioning your story for another platform, it's that many fewer minutes you have to actually verify the facts that you have. And to me, that's a major problem facing journalism today. Cecil, you say it's scary. The story that you tell is actually terrifying, you know, and this this uh, very compelling image that we're outnumbered, you know, what is it, 10 to 1, 14 to 1, that the, that the truth tellers are just overpowered. You know, this isn't just you. Like, journalists always talk about it as the dark side. We're up against the, the, the forces of evil. <laughs> is it really that scary? Because I wake up every morning to like a dozen press releases. Here, here these are from today. Hi, Jesse. Here's a story of Ontario Winters of our remembered past, potentially coming back with a vengeance. I'd be happy to arrange an interview with a first on-site specialist to provide tips for businesses and homeowners to protect their property during winter. Kyle Troscott, account coordinator, Maverick Public Relations. Hi there. This one, they don't know my name. Hello Safe releases today a new report on the Canadian home insurance market. The Hello Safe team is at your disposal. Last one, for immediate release. What a year it has been. The rec laws are closing out 2023 at the top of the charts, scoring their fourth number one Canadian country radio hit today, Honky Tonkin' About. The majority of press releases that I get every day, I immediately throw out. They are almost always boring, obvious, and amateurish. They are almost always stories that anybody who's done any research, why would we send this to Jesse at Canada Land? If you knew what we are, you'd know that we would never cover this story. And I just get the sense with each of these that just some PR company took some sucker's check and blasted this press release out to like a thousand people in the media without any kind of discrimination. You know, it's spammy. It's a blunt force strategy. Is the PR industry really this all-powerful dark force? There are people who do it very well, and there are people who do it poorly. I give many examples. Here's one. Alan Thompson, he was a former Toronto Star reporter. He's now head of the journalism department at Carleton University. He ran for parliament in southern Ontario. He told me that sometimes no journalists came to some of his meetings that he organized. When that happened, he himself, as a former reporter, wrote a press release and sent it to various news outlets in his writing. And he said he was amazed to discover that often they would write a news story based solely on the news story he had supplied him. He, the candidate. In some cases, they reprinted his press release verbatim. I have talked to a number of people in the public relations business. This story comes up repeatedly. They say, Cecil, the stuff we put out is often printed verbatim, including the headlines that we suggest and the quotes that we supply. And I have seen this time and time again. So yes, there are bad examples of the ones you cited, 
but they're also very good examples. And here's the insidious part. Anytime there's a major announcement of fiscal update, a budget, there's always a leak. A news organization will always say the day before, we have learned what's going to be in the budget. Here's a little tidbit for you. This is the government playing the media, giving little bits of information to the Globe and Mail and another little bit to CTV and another little bit to CBC, who then revel in the fact that they have some kind of exclusive scoop. And it's not the clumsy press release you talked about. It's the more sophisticated, I will whisper something in your ear. You will attribute it to a source who is not authorized to speak publicly, and you will have a pseudo scoop. Meanwhile, we will have delivered our message out to the public with maximum effect. So this goes on on a daily basis. Not only is Cecil right that that happens, but I've done it. I was on the dark side. I was going to say, I, <laughs> I know that not all PR flacks are like amateurish because you used to be one. Well, okay. Now, I'm going to say I never did anything that I thought was wrong. Sure, sure. But was I successful at manipulating media? You bet I was. I knew reporters because I'd been a reporter and I knew which reporters to leak. Who did you work for? Oh, I worked for Assembly of First Nations. Um, so which this is, is like the political messaging. Assembly of First Nations is a lobby group that represents chiefs across Canada, and it is one of the most successful, arguably successful lobby groups. It has created like a third power in between, you know, English and French Canada. The rise of the Assembly of First Nations really uh, was an intervention into the Canadian political system. So what was your greatest hits when it comes to manipulating media? Okay, so I, I do have a story. I did the things that C said. I knew the, the more that I wrote a press release to sound like a news story instead of a press release, the more likely it was to get picked up. I would give reporters that I thought would do a good job on the story and, to me, understand the story and get the message that we wanted out, the story. This didn't mean that the story was wrong or that it was necessarily a lie, but I was definitely hedging my bets on getting stories out. So there was one where we're trying to attract attention to tuberculosis. And I don't want to say the reporter because it's a good reporter. But I knew if I gave that reporter the story, it was going to get national attention. And that story blew up the minute that reporter filed that story. So you manipulated the media for the force of good. I think so. <laughs> Cecil, you kind of cover all of the different dark arts and the different methodologies that the press falls for kind of reliably every time. And you have a chapter dedicated to think tanks, the widespread understanding of think tanks as just like places where really smart people go to think. What a great job for these brainiacs to do their research. They exist, many of them, to put forth a bias, an agenda. And, uh, you know, you, you do a great job of documenting how it's not unlike Hallmark inventing Mother's Day uh, or Valentine's Day, but like, uh, you know, there's a conservative taxpayers group that has created this annual event that the media falls for reliably every year. Oh, this is the day of, of whatever it's called, taxpayer independence. Up till this day, every dollar you made has gone to the government. Tax Freedom Day. Tax Freedom Day. And, it, and every year, it's a, a stroke of genius. It, it, it inspires stories every year. And we even know that where it's coming from, but we, we do it. It's just one trick of many. Very sophisticated ways that they are able to launder their message through news journalists. But I think the puck has moved. PR is not press relations. PR is public relations. And they're only interested in us to the extent that we are the ones who people get their information from. 
If people are getting their information elsewhere, then that's where PR is going. And the big win of manipulating a journalist or getting them to do stenography, press release journalism, well, it doesn't really get you much. I mean, I guess you could show your client, here's what we, here's all the earned media that, that your money bought. So it can make it look like you did your job. But if you really are trying to move the needle on what people think, I wonder if you don't even care about what's in the newspaper anymore. How many people are even getting their news from the newspaper anymore? No, I think they really still do care. Influencing the media, I would argue, is still an extremely important tactic because whether you go to social media or TikTok or whatever, it doesn't matter. A lot of that originates with media reports. Very few people are directly following the Fraser Institute on social media, I would argue. And yet the Fraser Institute, in their annual report, they boast about how many media mentions they get every year. It's extremely important to them. And I know from supervising reporters myself that you know, it's easy to harvest a quote from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on any story that deals with government spending. Uh, oh, my God, I, I need a reaction. I need a quote really fast. They're available. I've done that. I've gone running to Canadian Taxpayers Federation because I, I need a quote and I need somebody who's following this. I, I've totally done that. That's it, because they know how the game is played. A lot of these think tanks and organizations, they sound very authoritative the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, the Fraser Institute. Wow, it's named after a river in BC. <laughs> like, I've seen this with my own eyes. Young reporters will come back and there's a quote. I think some of them think this is like a university department. And they don't dig into what is the ideology here. I don't think, never mind the public, I actually don't think some journalists are fully cognizant of what's going on in some of these cases. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. I think that you make an interesting point. We still matter, but I think it's a different kind of relevance than we used to have. It's not necessarily that you need to get your message out on the news because that's where the audience is. I think that the role has shifted where the value of getting news coverage as much as you can beyond just being able to show here's what I did and put it in your annual report. But to the point of actually shifting public opinion, it's still an important like vector. It's not the biggest disseminator of information. You know, it's, it's still significant. But it's more about that so much other media builds on the record created by established legacy media. So much that you see on TikTok, so many aggregators, so many commentators, so much uh, analysis. A Wikipedia article, well, you need to refer back to a news article. When Canada Land was the target of a very well-financed PR campaign to try to discredit our journalism, it was very interesting to me that among the many techniques and, and strategies used against us, one I think of the most successful ones was they were able to get a editorial placed in the Toronto Star, which was carefully written to read like a news story. The one that I have in mind was in their opinion section as an editorial, but Unless you looked at that little designation, it read as a news story that it exonerated the organization that we'd been reporting on. That becomes sort of like one ingredient in a case that is being built where if they can cite, here's all of these different news organizations uh, agreeing on a narrative, regardless of whether or not people read these articles, it starts to build a counter narrative, another consensus, and it becomes itself a, you know, uh, it's almost a circular thing. Then the originator organization can refer to all of these news stories that they planted and say, see, this has been confirmed and affirmed by all these different uh, organizations. We still matter in that sense, though the degree to which media, which is so under fire and reporters are being so derided and the concept that, you know, like simultaneously is this idea that we're all a bunch of liars and we're and it's all fake news. And that brings me to something that you talk about as well, which is the government's decision to fund the news in Canada. How do you see that fitting in to this kind of like endless war between the PR industry and journalism? It's kind of a bad situation for journalism these days in terms of all the money that's been bled out of the industry. Two of my uh, suggestions for how to improve the situation, one of them is to help and really support all the different startup news organizations that have sprung up over the last few years. Some of them are doing fantastic work. They're covering topics that legacy mainstream media have stopped covering or can't cover properly. If Canadians think it's productive for government to be funding health care and social services and a whole bunch of other positive things for society, I think funding of journalism is also a positive thing for society. And it has to be done in a way that doesn't compromise the integrity of the journalism. And I think that's the tricky part. I worked for the CBC for many years, which is about 70% funded by government. Mm -hmm. I never felt, and I was a senior person in the CBC. I was a manager. I was a managing editor. I was a director. I never felt that government of the day was compromising the integrity of the organization. So I believe it can be done. 
I worked at the CBC for a lot smaller point of time than, than UC Seoul. I never felt direct government pressure to influence any story, but I absolutely worked with colleagues who said things out loud because they're smart people who follow politics who knew that their jobs were safer with one government than the other. You know, we knew that and the public knows that we know that. And right now we have one federal party that's threatening to defund the CBC. All of that was a preamble to a very different criticism or perspective on government funding that I want to put to you from this lens of PR. I don't think that the government thinks and their intent is, oh, if we fund newspapers and news journalists, then we can control them and we can censor them. I, I actually don't think that that's possible or, or the intent at all. I do think that the government is very concerned about the destruction of the legacy Canadian news media and the rise of chaos in the information space. I do think that they have a daily need to get their message out there through their toolbox of PR tactics. That is a much harder thing to do in a fragmented media space that consists of wonderful independent journalism like Canada Land and agenda-driven, angry, quasi, whatever you want to call the rebel, and a uh, hundred other players or a thousand other players. Is this chaotic, dispersed, fragmented new media space going to show up to your government press event? Are they going to diligently cover the budget announcement? If you call them up and try to feed them a little bit of advanced knowledge, do they give a damn? We march to a different drum, that we don't have to feed the goat in the same way. We don't have uh, the same way of doing media. My belief as to why this is a priority for government is to maintain some kind of reliable, dependable, predictable channel for government messaging. That's interesting, and, and I'm not disagreeing with you, actually. I actually think that's that's somewhere in their mind. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The media is still needed. The media is still needed by the the shapers of public opinion to get their messages out. Uh, and I think that just reinforces uh, th that point even more. Like in my chapter on the police, I do mention that some police departments, Toronto and Winnipeg and others, have taken to creating their own channels of communication outside of conventional ones. Yeah, you mentioned their podcast. We reported on that, 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 that like cop casting. They actually are just like, oh, if people want to hear crime stories, we got a bunch. Exactly. But it's not just the police. Politicians are doing it too. They are. Yeah, they're, they're just writing us out of the pipeline entirely, which makes it a lot easier if they could actually get people to just, uh, you know, suck directly from their pipe, you know. They're trying to. Look, there was an incident in Winnipeg last month. A 37-year-old indigenous man was wandering in and out of traffic banging on people's cars. Police were called. It was a wellness check. They were placing him into custody, and he died, okay? And that was the press release that the police put out, which everyone covered. You know, some person unfortunately died in the course of police trying to resolve this situation. Well, the next day, the CBC talked to an eyewitness and used the video that they shot of this fellow lying on the ground being pummeled by two police officers, kneed and slugged repeatedly, okay? The chief of police of Winnipeg, Danny Smythe, took to his own Substack page to criticize the media for daring to talk to eyewitnesses to this event because he said those people are not use of force experts. <laughs> 
and that it's the police narrative that should be followed here. And he was very clear and he was very transparent that the only narrative that should be followed here is the police narrative. So they use every means at their disposal in terms of influencing conventional media and now trying to create some of their own channels. You know, there are a lot of former journalists working in PR. There are some former PR people working in journalism. (laughs) There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to get your story out for the person who's paying you, right? And I think the vast majority of people working in PR would argue like, look, we're tired of this. What we do is benign. Every organization has some aspect of it that faces the public. Some are directly involved every day and some, you know, only at crisis times. And, you know, we focus on the worst of it, like the real manipulators, the crisis comms people, the people who are really trying to lie to the public. But day in and day out, like, I've actually seen information come out that, like, I'm glad I have. And Yeah, at, you think. <laughs> well, as they go directly to the public, some of them are doing a, a decent job, and even some with agendas. Like, there's, you know, there's a whole new category. Where are the new jobs and news? Some of them are coming from, you know, we, we have Press Progress, which is funded out of the Broadbent Institute, which is an NDP-affiliated think tank that has its own news organ. Luke Lebrun, the editor of Press Progress, and all the good journalists who work for him will be very upset to hear themselves described in this way because I actually think they wake up every day and they, and they do journalism and they've actually broken some really good stories. But I've never read a story from Press Progress that would embarrass or contradict the agenda of the NDP. And maybe they can correct me on that, but you know they're looking for news stories that are true, verifiable news stories that benefit the political party or the ideology or the general point of view of the political party. You know, so that, that's a certain way of kind of putting some distance between, but we know why it's there. I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that. I think that one solution to all of this is like let a thousand or a hundred thousand flowers bloom. Like if Have you, more partisan media? Well, that's where media started. I mean, people look at this one era where we had these central newspapers that were sort of the independent as like, well, that's what media is all about. That was very briefly what media tried to show itself to be about. And even then it was, you know, there was a fair amount of partisan influence. The beginning of media was pamphleteering and it's chaotic, it's scary. But when you have a multiplicity of interests using the truth to get their points across. And then if somebody goes too far, they get pushed by the other one and the other one exposes the other one. It actually can end up with a sum total of more true stuff on the record than the era of those where a city might have three respectable newspapers, all kind of printing variations of the same story. It just is really hard uh, as a news reader to follow it all and to keep track of what's real and what's false. Assis, what do you think about the argument for partisan press? Look, there's subjectivity in journalism and there's objectivity in journalism. What's the subjectivity? It's in what stories you choose to cover. That is totally subjective. Mm-hmm. I can be running a mainstream news organization and choose to cover 10 stories today. You could be running another one and choose to cover 10 completely different stories today. That's the subjective part of what we do. But the objective part of what we do should be, once we decide which stories those are that we're going to cover, we have to cover them in a fair and objective and balanced way. We can't let our religions or our corporate allegiances or the fact that we're getting a paycheck from a client color our search for the truth about those stories. 
That is where objectivity has to kick in, and that's how we should judge the output of any news, any organization that claims to be a news organization. It's on the objectivity of their finished report, not on the subjective. Like if there's if there's a news organization that starts up that says we only want to concentrate on doing stories about the dangers of nuclear power, fine, good, that's great. But it doesn't mean that it gives them the license to distort or manipulate or lie about the messages that they're going to be reporting on. And that's how I tend, that's how I try to judge all of these different outlets. So yeah, let a thousand uh, flowers blossom. You know, look, one of, one of my biggest fears in writing this book is all my friends in PR, and I do have some, <laughs> a lot of them are former journalists, are going to hate me. In fact, I've got a vigorous exchange going on right now between a former colleague who's in the world of PR are they all evildoers? No. But in the end, if you take on clients, your allegiance is to the client. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. I like telling you about Squarespace because I like the fact that the World Wide Web is still powerful. People have been trying to get rid of it forever and get us onto proprietary platforms, but you still need a website because open networks are the best networks and you need a good website and Squarespace has you covered. They have amazing templates. It's kind of an all-in-one solution. It's a platform for entrepreneurs. It plugs into all the other stuff, social media and e-commerce, and it's got every little widget you could possibly imagine. Email marketing is baked in, an asset library, video, you can just start playing with this, start building your website for free, and then you can make it your actual website. Listen, go to squarespace.com for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. I've done it myself. It's a good experience. Squarespace.com slash CanadaLand. I've just got to say, because I, I can't let Jesse get away with, with saying a thousand flowers, like I let him say it, but I think that there are a lot of a skewed reports coming out from media that picks a side, and, you know, I can look at them and see what facts are missing and that there's no balance. And so I don't think that idea that you've got a left media that reports one side of facts, a right media that reports another side of facts, and they all fit down algorithms that feed us exactly what we want to hear and we never see the other side is kind of working. So that's my take. Go ahead, Jesse. You wanted to get into this. Oh, yeah. Because, <laughs> Cecil, everything you just said except for one thing is wrong. The, the... <laughs> The, the, the notion that the objectivity of journalists ends its story selection. I mean, come on. We are subjective in which photograph runs with the story, in the headline, in who we decide to, to speak to. The most neutral-sounding CP-style report has a hundred decisions in it. The use of the passive voice or the active voice, t terminology, jargon. There's, this is what we do here every week is dissect this stuff for its subjectivity. But the final objective, like you could say the same thing about scientists in, in a laboratory in terms of the test tubes they're using, what methodology they want to employ, how big is their sample size, uh, what questions are they asking? I mean, in the end, it's a pursuit of truth. That's the thing you said that was right. The, 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 <laughs> so 
The big difference. See what I put up with every day? <laughs> the difference is not between objectivity and subjectivity. The difference is between who's paying you and who do you serve. That's the only difference, right? It's basically, are you doing journalism or not? I think it's totally okay to have information. We, we, I wouldn't necessarily call it journalism. A big thing I talk about in my book is like the conventional narrative. Let's take a couple quick examples that, that, that we all know about. The story of the two Michaels. Up until a few days ago, anyone who dared in the media suggest that the two Michaels were anything other than innocent victims of a off-their-rocker Chinese regime that was just trying to use them as bargaining chips to get Meng Wanzhou released would have been laughed at. Suddenly, maybe there's another story here based on a Globe and Mail report. I don't know all the facts yet, but the power of a conventional narrative, especially when it deals with who's our adversary, you know, this gets ramped up in times of war. But do you know the first place that I read about Everybody stop glorifying the two Michaels, they're spies. The first place that I read about that was from the very partisan far-left press in Canada. Now, you'll get true things coming from partisan press. What they didn't have was the discipline of journalism. It took Bob Fife and Stephen Chase to actually prove that, right? I wouldn't go that far. I mean, they're relying on an anonymous source. So every time you rely on an anonymous source, the, the jury is still out. Well, yeah, to, to start building a, a verifiable record that, documenting that yeah. uh, there's, there's yeah. good reason to believe that, that at least one of them was involved in espionage. My point is we benefit from having many different voices with many different agendas. I totally agree. But ultimately, the role of the journalist is to sort through it all because we're the only ones who are using a, a discipline that – answers to what is real as opposed to how can I benefit my master? That is what I meant by objectivity. And the and if you want to call it rigor, if you want to call it journalistic integrity, if you want to apply a different label, I'm with you. But the power of the narrative is so great. Like, you know, we all know, of course, that when the U.S. invaded Iraq and accused Saddam Hussein of having weapons of mass destruction, that was a lie. We all know this today. And yet, if you look at what the big American and Canadian media outlets were reporting at the time, they all fell in line with this narrative. I've gone to a lot of journalism conferences. I would bump into American reporters three, four, five years after that. They felt guilty that they were not pushing back on that at the time. Can I ask you about that for a minute? Because it's, an, it's a phenomenon that I'm witnessing again. It's when the moral atmosphere gets so intense around a narrative that we suspend our practice as journalists, where it becomes, you know, a, a real act of, of heresy to question, you know. So after 9-11, it was about emotion. It was everyone was feeling so vulnerable and victimized and, and, and terrible and vengeful that no one dared say, I don't know about this stuff. You know, it was just you'd have to go against such a kind of monolithic uh, emotional, persuasive force to do so. And, I, and, and, and whenever things get intense enough, it happens again. You know, it's very true. And look, uh, I have a chapter in my book on the military. The military have hundreds of people on staff devoted to public relations and communications. Did you know that? Hundreds. And there are less than, you can count on the fingers of one hand, the number of full-time mainstream journalists who covered defense in Canada. That's the imbalance there. But I spoke to David Pugliese, 
who is probably one of Canada's best reporters, in my estimation. And he tries to hold the Defense Department to account quite regularly, routinely. He's got very good sources. He's been accused of being a Taliban supporter, a Russian sympathizer. The minister's office has tried to get him fired on a number of occasions. The pressure, the pressure to fall into line on certain narratives is great. They'll tell you that you're killing people. If, if you find out something, they'll call up your editor and say, if he runs this, it's going to cost Canadian lives. That, that's what the security apparatus says. Uh, it's the first thing they say when they, when they know that you figured something out. That is totally right. Or, or take another example. This incident where, you know, all our parliamentarians stood up and, and cheered for a uh, Waffen SS uh, member in parliament. If you remember that incident. <laughs> yes, I do. How did the media respond to that? It happened on a Friday. Not a single mainstream Canadian journalist pointed this out. They all said, oh, in the crowd today is a Ukrainian hero who fought against the Russians in World War II. The first response of Trudeau to that incident? This is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and by extension to all Canadians. I think particularly of Jewish MPs and all members of the Jewish community across the country who are commemorating Yom Kippur today. Uh, I think it's going to be really important that all of us push back against Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, and continue our steadfast and unequivocal support for Ukraine. He tried to raise the specter of Russian disinformation because that was the strategy the Liberals used when all the stories started surfacing about Christian Freeland's grandfather. We were directly warned, don't take the bait. And it turns out it was true that this was being peddled by Putin affiliates. It was also true that it was true. Exactly. It was <laughs> true that it was true. That's the key thing. It's a daily game, you know. It's a daily operation of trying to divine fact from fiction. And part of it is just that uh, not even about trying to fool the press, but it's just trying to get your message out when – the field is very crowded. Every day that a PR flack wants to get a message out there, they're competing with everybody else who wants to get, you know, there's only a limited amount of attention people have. Cecil, thank you very much. Thank you. That is your Canada land. If you enjoyed it, if you value it, support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for our work. And if you become a supporter, we try to make you very happy about that decision. We give you premium access to all of our shows ad-free. We are always cooking up bonus content, giving you early access to our stuff. We give you an exclusive newsletter that other people don't get. We give you discounts on Candleland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But, you know, the reason why you do it is to become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You do it to make sure that our work stays free for everybody else. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. My email address is jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Our website is canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing is from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofor. Our editor-in-chief, who joined me in today's interview, is Karen Puglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication's handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.